was great. Let's, uh, if you would join with me. Uh, oh, kids, you are now dismissed. Thanks for hanging out. And while they're walking out, if you all would please rise as we read God's word together. Our scripture passage this morning comes from John chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace, but because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, over the next few weeks, uh, we are diving back into the Gospel of John, and we're looking at the last few chapters, the chapters that describe Jesus' arrest and his betrayal and his crucifixion. These passages are commonly called the Passion. Um, They're not called that because they're especially passionate, but they're called that because it comes from the Latin word passio that means suffering. And our hope is over the next few weeks as we lead up to Easter in April, this is going to help us to grow in our understanding of the meaning behind Jesus' death and his resurrection. Now, today's passage is the beginning of his interactions with Pontius Pilate. It's the beginning of his trial. And at the center of this interaction is one major question. It is the question of what is the truth about Jesus? That's what Pilate is trying to figure out. What is the truth 
about Jesus. In this Pilate, in this passage, Pilate, he has to do really what all of us have to do at some point in our lives when we are confronted with the claims that Jesus makes. We have to hear the evidence. We have to weigh the facts. And then we have to decide, is Jesus who he claims to be? Or is he a deceiver? Or maybe he's some kind of a political revolutionary. Or, or maybe, maybe he's just crazy. But if he's telling the truth, if Jesus is who he says he is, then what does that mean for the world? And what does it mean for my own life? Those are big questions. How does anybody make that kind of judgment? How can anybody come to a, a right decision about those kinds of facts? Well, the question that Pilate asks near the end of this passage is pretty simple. It's, what is truth? And I think that's a great place for us to begin this morning. That's really where I want us to take us. I want us to talk about the issue of truth. How do we know what truth is? How do we decide about truth? And then I want us to look at Christ's claim of truth. What does Jesus claim? And then finally, I want us to look at a life of truth. If we think Jesus is who he says he is, what does that mean for our lives? So let's, let's go into that. The issue of truth, first of all. Um, not long after Melissa and I were first married, we were taking a seminary class together. You may not know, Melissa went to seminary as well. Um, and we, right after we got married, came back. Uh, to Massachusetts, and we were enrolled together in a world missions class. And the type of class isn't really, that doesn't matter for the story, but what matters is that we were newly married, and we were having a hard time. We were struggling. We were uh, arguing a lot, and we were shell-shocked by it. We were surprised that that's what marriage was like. And I remember that one of the things that made that especially hard was our perception of what marriage was supposed to be like. Our perception of what everybody else's marriages were like. See, we thought everybody was having an easy time in their marriage. We thought we were the only ones struggling the way that we were, and, and we just couldn't. We, were, we thought we were the only ones who couldn't figure it out. And I remember in this particular class, we were sitting there next to each other, and I look over at Melissa while the professor is teaching, and she's just crying in the middle of class. Do you remember this? She, she probably wasn't scarred by this the way that I was. She's, she's, she's crying in the middle of class, and I don't know what's going on. I, I, I'm not sure what's happening. And finally, when we get a chance to talk, she tells me that the reason why she was crying is because in front of us, a few seats over, there was somebody working on their laptop, and their screensaver was a picture of their family. And it kept scrolling through the slides, and they were all smiling, and they were all happy together. And it reminded her of how unhappy she was. It reminded her of the life that she thought she was going to have, and how she thought everybody else's marriage was, was better than ours. But if we had only known back then what we know now, right, that marriage is hard. But also, we know now that looks can be deceiving, right? Family photos are made so that you look happy. 
Family photos are, are made to, to, to present a certain image and reality to the world. And it's not just pictures that do that. We do that in the church too, don't we? What, what we show each other on a Sunday morning, is that the truth of who we are? Of what we're struggling with? Of how our life is really going? Or is that a facade that we put on? A smiling face that is covering up a much different reality behind the scenes. You know, to, to try to combat this issue, this past year they came out with a new social media app called Be Real. Anybody have it? <laughs> Be Real, the whole idea of this app is it sets a timer off, and at that moment everyone in the world who has the app is supposed to take a picture of what they're doing, how they look at that moment no matter what. They thought this would solve the problem of, of falsehood on social media, but, you know, a Saturday Night Live skit a few weeks ago uh, about people using this app in the middle of a bank robbery, right? <laughs> it showed that there is, there's no such thing as real when it comes to social media. We live in a world of illusions, a world of carefully manufactured impressions. And the question is, in a world like that, a world that is often made of smoke and mirrors, how do we know the truth? One school of thought might tell you, you can't know the truth. Many people today would even go so far as to tell you there is no such thing as truth, at least not truth with a capital T. They'll tell you truth is kind of fluid. Truth is shifting. Truth is not dependent upon any one reality, but it's, it's really dependent upon the changing views of society at large. Truth comes down not to the facts, but it's about what somebody feels to be true in their hearts. Today, you might hear somebody say something like, well, just because that's true for you, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true for me. And I, I'm going to say, I understand that. I understand why someone would want to say that, because it sounds nice, right? It's, it's not confrontational. You don't have to tell somebody else that they're wrong. And it is a way to exist in a society where we are constantly living around people who have different viewpoints. You don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. But... It is also completely untenable. It is completely irrational. It, it sounds nice, but it cannot stand up to any thoughtful examination of it. Either something is true, or it's not. A classic example of this that you read in all the, the, the apologetics books is the, the issue of slavery. Is slavery wrong? That's kind of an interesting one to bring up here in this room, right? Because slavery is a part of our history as a church. Did you know that there was a time when the largest slaveholder in Iredell County paid the salary of the senior pastor at Center Presbyterian Church? Now the question is, was that wrong? Was that a sin? If truth is relative, 
If truth is only defined by what the masses believe, then the relativists would have to say, well, it's wrong now, but back then it wasn't wrong. It's evil now, but back then it wasn't wrong. Now, can we actually stomach that? Can we actually believe that? Of course not. Slavery was an atrocity. It left a huge, deep fracture in our society. Scripture clearly teaches that that every person is made in the image of God to reflect his glory. We are not meant to be possessions. It's wrong to enslave another person today, and it's always been wrong. And it is a testament to God's mercy that he has allowed his church to continue in spite of periods where we have been painfully blind to our sin. But the only rational definition of truth, the only definition of truth that makes any sense is that truth cannot be subjective. Truth cannot be dependent on the views of any one individual or the views of the culture at large. Truth must be objective to be truth. It must be solid. It must be unchanging. And so a question comes out of that. If the culture's view of what is right and wrong is always shifting, if we could be so blind as a country to think something obviously wrong was right, if we could be so wrong back then, well, can't we just as easily be wrong today? How do we know what truth is? Where does truth with a capital T come from? Well, the only answer that can stand up is that truth has to come from God. Truth has to come from here, from his word. It has to come from one who exists outside of time and outside of culture. Amen? Objective truth can only come from God himself. He is the only one who is fit to be the final arbiter of right and wrong. And so when we come to the issue of truth, that means we cannot look to our own ever-changing feelings. We cannot even look to the masses of people around us. What we have to do is we have to look to him and we have to find out what he has to say. And so that brings us back to our passage this morning and the question of Christ's claim of truth. Now, when you look at this passage, the interaction between Pilate and Jesus, it's pretty clear from the outset that Pilate doesn't know all that much about Jesus. The first thing he asks of the Jewish leaders, he says, what charges are you bringing against this man? And they respond, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Now, what charges are you bringing? That seems like a pretty fair question for a judge to ask a group of people who, who have brought, turned someone over. But if you're following along with the story, you might realize the Jewish leaders were probably surprised by this. They were probably taken aback by 
the idea that Pilate was going to carry out a real trial here. After all, we just read last week, Robert just preached on it last week, the, the passage where Jesus was arrested. Do you remember who came to arrest him? A group of soldiers, right? Now, Pilate would have been the one to send those soldiers. So they, these Jewish leaders had probably assumed, well, Pilate's just going to go along with whatever our plan is. But if you read through the history books, you'll realize that Pilate had a pretty strained relationship with the people of Jerusalem, with the people of Judea. And he lets these guys know in this first couple of sentences that he is not anybody's puppet, that they're not pulling the strings. And I'm sure that was disappointing to them. But Pilate wants to ask Jesus some questions. And when Pilate begins to ask questions, the first one he asks is, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus pretty quickly understands the circumstances. These Jewish leaders, they have turned him over, and they have presented him as some kind of political threat. The king of the Jews. The, uh, and he wants, he, so, so here's how Jesus responds. Verse 36. <clears throat> my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. So Jesus, he makes two major assertions when he responds to Pilate. First, he says that he is king. Pilate is very concerned with politics. He is concerned about the possibility of an uprising. The Roman government has been pretty brutal in its treatment of the Jewish people, and he knows that, that it is a tense environment. He does not want anything like that to occur. And so when Jesus answers this question... <clears throat> He is saying that his kingdom is not of this world. He's telling him, I don't care about the politics. I'm not concerned with the politics of Rome. The events of this nation are so small in comparison to the mission of my kingdom. But notice, he is not saying that his kingdom doesn't involve this world. Augustine makes the careful distinction. He says that, that Jesus did not say, my kingdom is not in this world. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is very much in this world. That was a big point of his ministry. The very first thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is all about bringing the kingdom into this world. But his concern is not about territories. It's not about national boundaries. It's not about thrones and rulers who come and go. It is about the eternal souls of the people he has come to save. People who cross every national boundary, and span the globe. And for Pilate's sake, you kind of get the picture, it's a good thing his kingdom is not of this world, right? Otherwise, Pilate would be in pretty big trouble here if he decided to call down the full weight of his power and authority into that moment, if, in fact, his servants decided to fight for his freedom. But his kingdom's not of this world. And so Pilate says, well, you are a king then. And Jesus says, 
You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. This is his second assertion. He says that he came to testify to the truth. Now, if I were to pull you aside this morning before the service and ask you, what did Jesus come to do? Why was he born on earth? What would you answer? I try to think about what I would answer, but I don't think it would be this. I don't think the words that would have come out of my mouth are the ones that come out of Jesus' mouth here. He says, I was born and came into this world to testify to the truth. I mean, what does that even mean exactly? What truth is that? What is the truth Jesus came to testify about? Well, I would suggest that it is the truth of our separation from God and our need to be reconciled to him. It is the truth of our sinfulness and our corruption, of our rejection of having any authority over us beside our own will and our own desire. It's the truth of our confusion, that we're confused about the truth, that we're lost, that the law of God, it may be written on our hearts so that deep down we have a sense of what right and wrong is, but when it comes to living our lives, we decide that what's right is whatever happens to be best for us at the moment. Jesus testifies to the truth of God's perfection and holiness and of our corruption, our sinfulness. What is the truth? Well, As we've read through this entire gospel over the last almost year now, over and over again, we have seen that John has identified the truth as the essence of who Jesus is. Do you remember how this gospel started out? Chapter 1. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the essence of truth. And in our passage, when Jesus makes this statement that he came in the world to testify to the truth, as soon as he says this, Pilate cuts him off. He says, what is truth? He doesn't want to hear anymore. And he doesn't wait for an answer. He's not looking to learn anymore. But Jesus has already given the answer to that question. He did it a few chapters before this. Do you remember? Pilate asks, what is truth? Well, Jesus has already told us in John 14, I am the way, 
and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The truth that Jesus came to bear witness to is a painful truth. It's the truth that we're far away from God and that he is the only way back. If you go out and you ask most people, are you a good person? Most people will generally answer yes. Now, nobody thinks they're perfect. Everybody knows their shortcomings. They say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not perfect, but there are a lot of people worse than me. I'm, I'm a good person. But Jesus shows us what real holiness looks like. When we see him, when we see the way he lived, when we see the things that he taught, when we see the way that he worshipped and cared and loved others, we realize that we are nowhere close to good. His hard truth is that we are far from God and we need to be brought back to him. And there's only one way back. He is the way. He is the truth. The only way back is to receive his sacrifice as the payment for those sins that we have. The only way back is to turn away from the shifting sands of our own hearts and our own instincts and our own intuitions and instead turn to him, the solid rock, as the foundation of our lives. So Jesus, he claims that he's the king and that he's come to bring his kingdom and that the only way to be a part of that kingdom is to acknowledge the truth. The truth that he came to bear witness to. The truth of who we are. And the truth of who he is. The truth of our sinfulness and the truth of God's holiness. R.C. Sproul, he said, We only embrace relativism when objective truth is a threat to us. And no truth is more threatening than the holiness of God. We only embrace relativism when objective truth is a threat to us. And no truth is more threatening than the holiness of God. But all of us have to make a judgment. All of us have to make a judgment when it comes to the claim of Christ. And that way, Pilate is a stand-in for us in this story. In verse 38, Pilate admitted that he thought Jesus was telling the truth. He said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But in the end, he still condemned him to die. He still released Barabbas instead of letting this innocent man go. He did that to preserve his own power. What about you? What judgment have you made? Well, that brings us to the third thing we need to consider this morning. And it is the life of truth. Now, we're in church this morning, and, and that means I assume that many of us, if not most of us, have made the decision about Jesus. We've decided to follow him. 
We've decided to take his claim of truth seriously. We have accepted the truth about our sin and the truth about his salvation, which is great. But I want to bring this into the real world for us. What does that really mean? If truth is not relative, if it's objective, if it is solid, if it is not dependent upon our whims or the whims of the world around us, what does it mean for us to live in the truth? Psalm 86 is one of my favorite psalms because of verse 11. In that verse, David writes, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. This is one of my favorite verses. It is the only verse that I have ever attempted to memorize in the original Hebrew and failed. But I tried. <laughs> this is an important verse that, that I would say when I read it, it hits me on a visceral level. Can you picture that image of a divided heart? You ever see those little necklaces that has a heart that's broken into a bunch of different pieces, and each person gets one, you know, each friend has a little different piece of the heart? I feel like that's my heart sometimes. Only those necklaces, they're not going out to my best friends. They're going out to my idols, to the things that compete with God for my allegiance, to those lies that I'm clinging to instead of his truth. And so one little chain is hanging around the necklace of success. And one is hanging around the neck of comfort. One's hanging on the neck of lust. Another might be hanging on the neck of a good reputation. And when my heart is spread out all over the place like that, it becomes impossible for the one truth of God to be the purpose of my life. It becomes impossible for me to live for his glory alone. I often think about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a German pastor and theologian, he has a several biographies out there, but if you read the story of his life, you cannot help but read it, at least I read it, and I think this person was insane. He lived his life with no regard for his career, no regard for the opinion of other people, no regard for even his own life. He was concerned for the glory of God. This was a man who lived for the truth. And, and when he came to America as a professor in New York, he worshipped in the churches in Harlem. And you can read his letters where he wrote back uh, to the people at home in deep confusion and despair, wondering how the Christians of this country during the Jim Crow era could, could abide by laws that would keep them separated from their brothers and sisters in Christ. And you might think, how, well, it's easy to critique from the outside. It's easy to come from, from somewhere else and see the problems of a country. But then, when his own country 
faced the Nazi regime, he was one of the few pastors who was not fooled by that nationalistic trap that many of the other Christians and churches fell into. Instead, he spoke out loudly against Hitler. And not only spoke out, but, but acted in a way to end his rule to the point where he was arrested and ended up being one of the last men killed in the Flossenburg concentration camp in 1945. A life like that makes me pray with David. Lord, teach me your ways so that I could walk in your truth. Unite my heart so that the only glory I desire, the only truth I live for is yours. Now look, I am not saying that to be a great Christian, you've got to become a martyr. I'm not saying that you have to live some life that is worthy of a great biography. But what I am saying is that the truth of Christ, if we really believe it, if we really know it, it should set us free from the ever-changing moods and preferences and ideals of the world around us. The truth of Christ should free us from the opinions of others. And it should give us the confidence to live boldly for his name. To be like Christ. To testify to his truth no matter where we may be. And it doesn't have to be something big. It might just be something simple. It might be something as simple as being free to acknowledge your real sins and your struggles in a place like this. To testify to the truth instead of putting on a smile. I told you about how Melissa and I had such a hard time in our early marriage because we thought everybody else was doing fine. But if we know the truth of God... That we are big sinners with a much bigger Savior than it will give us the freedom to be who we really are. It will make us a loving people who are not judgmental, who are open about their struggles, and, and who are bold in their obedience to the Lord. Jesus said that his disciples would know the truth, and the truth would set them free. And so I want to invite you to respond to that truth that Jesus proclaims today. That truth that Jesus came to testify about today. I want to invite you to collect up all those pieces of your divided heart and join with me in following him in unashamed obedience bearing witness to that truth, that he is the only way, that he is the ultimate truth, and he is the source of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you love us. You love us so much that you came into this broken place full of confusion, and you showed us what truth really is. 
Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your patience and your kindness to this world that there would be such horrendous periods of sin and confusion. We know that right now we continue to be confused and lost apart from you. Would you draw us to your truth? Would you transform our lives? And would we be a people whose very lives show Christ to the world? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.